Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. Hi, everybody. It's uh, it's Alex again for a very exciting podcast interview. We have the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin, to talk about a number of things, his time in government, his time working in the healthcare space as a chief medical officer, as a president and CEO of different health systems. And as a lot of you guys know, he is the keynote speaker for the Healthcare Providers Transformation Assembly. We are super pumped to have him. As you guys know from the podcast I do, he fits right into the wheelhouse of people that fascinate me. And um, he's done a very exciting life and he's done a lot of great things in the healthcare space, both in government and outside government. So we're going to get right to it. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being with us. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Alex, it's great to be with you. Just because I know you're busy and I don't want to bog you down with all the minutia boring questions that I would like to ask you personally, Mr. Secretary, I like to give our subscribers a sense of where you came from. Obviously, I mean, you've been in healthcare for a number of years and you've accomplished so many great things. So I am curious to, to how healthcare became became a passion of yours. But before before that, if you can give our listeners a sense of where, where you grew up, what your upbringing was like, and how that led you into the field of healthcare and medicine, I think that would be a good start before we get to, to more of the fun stuff. Alex, I'll try to do it briefly. I was born on an army base in Illinois. My dad was an army doctor. And uh, following his service, we moved to Philadelphia, where my mother's from. And my dad was a doctor in private practice. And when I grew up, I grew up a pretty normal childhood. But I lived on a uh, street where the fire department would come down every day, several times a day. And whenever that would happen, I'd rush to the window to watch the fire department. And as soon as I turned 16, I became a volunteer fireman. And that's really what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to be in situations where I could rush in and help people that were in distress. And I thought that would be really good to be a fireman. My mother, however, really wanted me to be a doctor. And so ultimately (laughs) she won out and and, uh, I've always been attracted to jumping into situations where people needed my help in emergency type situations. I'm that type of person that pulls off on the road when you see an accident or raises their hand on the airplane when they ask for a doctor. And so much of my career has been jumping into situations that have needed turnarounds or organizations that were in distress when I became much more involved in management than patient care. As a chief medical officer, I saw early in your career and at certain stints of your career, you worked with a lot of universities. I know University of Pennsylvania, you were at Drexel, you were at Temple. Was there a reason specifically why, uh, especially early on in your, your career, the organizations you were working with were, were universities specifically? I'm a little bit of a rebel. I don't like to do things the normal way. Sometimes it makes it harder, but yeah. I find that, that it's the way that you sort of explore new territories and you can follow your curiosity. So I went to a college. I knew that I wanted to be pre-med, but I didn't want to do the traditional memorization of organic chemistry equations and, you know, be in the pre-med grind of sort of that competitive atmosphere. So I did a an alternative type of experience where you propose areas of study, much like a graduate school model to a thesis. You create a thesis and you present to a faculty committee. And so I actually got my undergraduate degree in a very non-traditional way. That led me to a medical school experience that was also non-traditional. I did my summers in 
Washington with the U.S. Senate in health policy issues, even when I went to residency, when other residents, I was in internal medicine, would do their electives in oncology or cardiology, I would choose to do my electives at Blue Cross or or in a in a place where I could begin to really understand how the system of healthcare worked rather than just focusing on how the individual body worked. So I've always pursued a career and a path that allowed me to explore areas outside of traditional medicine. My fellowships, when I first went to Penn, was as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation clinical scholar, which allowed you to study in areas outside of medicine. So I studied at the Wharton School in business. I studied in the sociologic areas of the university where you could understand why people were making certain decisions and how organizations worked and how you impact decision-making of physicians and of health systems. And that led me towards always sort of being on a leading edge of where healthcare was going. And, you know, a lot of people get their medical degree and go on to be what I think most people would look at as traditional doctors in ERs and internists in general. Was was policy always something that you were interested in or how policy affected healthcare was an interest of yours even at a young age? Yeah, I always wondered why people behave the way that they do. And when I was doing my training, it was becoming clear that medicine as a profession was beginning to lose its autonomy. This was the beginning of the industry of managed care, which was really about managing cost. And I couldn't quite understand why physicians and hospitals were not more aware of what was happening to them and their loss of, of this autonomy was gonna take away their ability to be able to advocate for patients. And so even as a resident physician, I conducted a study at the place that I was training where I asked doctors if they knew the prices of the tests that they ordered, whether it was a lab test or a CAT scan or an MRI, whether they had any idea when they would write a order with their pen, how much they were costing the system. And what I found, of course, was that doctors had no idea about the cost of healthcare. And that directly led to their lack of ability to control their own destiny. It turned over sure. much of that decision-making to now what we know as managed care companies. And so I was very concerned at the macro level about what was happening in healthcare, as opposed to just focusing on the individual patient. It's actually quite interesting. It seems like you were ahead of what ended up being a, a very much talked about and hotly debated subject in terms of the rising costs of healthcare in general. Before you took on, and for our listeners who don't know this, before um, Secretary Shulkin was the secretary at the VA, he was the undersecretary of health for the VHA. And I'm curious, before you took that role and officially stepped into government, from all the roles previously, is there one that stood out to you as whether you were running the entire uh, particular healthcare system or you were a chief medical officer for a particular for a particular hospital or system? Is there a specific role that stands out to you from, from a perspective of pride where you feel like a big sense of accomplishment? There was a lot of good stuff that like a, a, a big legacy you left on any of those previous roles? Well, I've been fortunate. I've always loved all of the jobs that I've had. I've always felt like I've had a privilege of helping carry out the mission. And I'm very attracted to not-for-profit organizations like health systems and to government where the mission 
of serving the community and serving a population of patients is important. But, you know, there's nothing like your first job. And my first real job, the one that I would get a paycheck for, was at the University of Pennsylvania, where I had the opportunity to become the first chief medical officer of not only Penn, but of any major academic system. And so I was creating a role, this role that we've been talking about, about where I could translate what was happening in medicine to the business that was beginning to happen to hospitals and health systems. And so having the ability to be on that sort of leading edge and being able to participate in the development of new areas of medicine, in this case, the business of medicine, was very, very exciting for me. And I spent 10 years as the chief medical officer at Penn. And that really set the foundation for the rest of my career. Because when you uh, start out in a place that really tries to achieve excellence, and the culture is one of always trying to be best That's a great opportunity in which you create the expectations for the rest of your career. And it's why I advise young people who come talk to me that your first job is really an important one. You know, being able to be in an environment where you're going to be able to learn from others, be supported by others, but also work towards really doing something great, I think is important early on in your career. Well, well said. I agree with you. So five years spent at Morristown Medical, which for our listeners know that I'm a Jersey guy. I live in Westfield, not too far from you. Uh, not too far from, so not from you, from Morristown, excuse me. Yeah. You, were, you were there five years as the president for Morristown Medical, which I think is under the Atlanta Atlantic Health System umbrella. How, how did the position for Undersecretary of Health come about? And I ask that to a lot of people that I speak to. How do these big time, powerful positions in D.C. get how, how does that get linked to you? Because it's not like it's not like I assume you you wake up one day and you're like, oh, you know, you can go on some job board and you you can apply. It's it's obviously a lot different than that. How did that role specifically reach your doorstep? Well, one of the things I tell people is that you have to be aware of that old adage: "There's no such thing as a free lunch." <laughs> and so, so I was the CEO at Morristown and was very happy in that role uh, and not looking for anything else. And I was invited to a lunch in Washington, D.C. with somebody that I didn't know. And one of the things I tell people is, you know, what you should be doing is you should be always out meeting new people and being curious about what other people are doing. And so ne- you, sorry, you were, so you were invited to a lunch by someone you had never met or spoken to previously. I, I never met or spoken to. And I have to admit, I had a little bit of a curiosity because he invited me to lunch at the Metropolitan Club. Now the Metropolitan Club sits right across from the White House and it's where Abraham Lincoln and other presidents would go and have lunch when they would walk across Lafayette Park. And frankly, I would never be invited to be a member at the Metropolitan Club. So I have never been there. And I said, well, not only do I get to meet somebody that might be interesting, but I get to see what the Metropolitan Club's like. Yeah, cool. That's cool. So I went there and we had a nice lunch and talked about each other's careers. And at the very end of the lunch, as we were saying goodbye, the person who I was having lunch with said to me, you've had a really fascinating career and you know, congratulations on it. Do you have any regrets? And I thought about it for a second and I said, you know, the only regret I really have is, is that I haven't been able to give back through public service. And I'm reading in the newspaper and I'm watching on TV as the problems at the VA 
are really being talked about. And at the time in 2014, yep, this was, was the scandal, called, right? Yes, it was what we yeah. call the wait time scandal, where there were thousands of veterans waiting for health care, allegations of dozens of veterans dying because they couldn't get appointments. Sure. And I said, you know, it's really terrible because if there's any group of Americans that deserve the best that we can provide in American healthcare, it's our veterans. And he looked at me and he said, I understand and I can certainly relate to what you're saying. And so we said goodbye and I got on the train from Washington to head back to New Jersey. It was around a half hour into the train ride and my cell phone rang and I picked it up and they said, is this Dr. Shulkin? And I said, yes, it is. And they said, this is the White House. I thought it was a friend playing a joke on me, but it was pretty clear that this was no joke, that this was the White House. And they asked whether I could get off the train and come back and talk to them. And so when I tell people there's no such thing as a free lunch, obviously this was a person that was well-connected in Washington. The White House had actually asked them you know, to be on the lookout, that they needed somebody to come in and fix the VA and turn around the VA. And they wanted somebody with private sector experience who has done tough jobs and turnarounds. And he met me and must have picked up the phone to his contacts at the White House and they picked up the phone and called me. And that led to what it was the beginning of a one year long vetting process because the undersecretary is a Senate confirmed position. But a year after that phone call, I was sworn in as undersecretary. So, so I take it you got off the train. I got off the train and I came back to Washington. Yeah. So after, after you got off the train, did you go directly to the White House? No, I, <laughs> things in Washington are never the way that they seem. Uh, until they, um, the formal nominations are announced, the White House wants to keep their discussions relatively secret because they do not want people to know about potential candidates in case they don't vet out. And so most of my meetings in Washington during that year were done clandestinely, either in Starbucks around Washington or sometimes even on street corners where you would talk to people standing up. And so um, it really wasn't until they formally announced my nomination that I went to the White House. During that time period before you went in front of the Senate, did you ever have to have a one-on-one or like a three-on-one with, with then-President Obama? No. They, during the Obama administration, the vetting process was taken very seriously. They keep the president out of the process until they've cleared you and have essentially made sure that you can vet through the process. So I spent a lot of time with FBI agents, <laughs> with, with people that were going through every talk, every lecture, every newspaper interview I've ever done, White House policy analysts who would question me on my policy thinking on different topics. And it was a very comprehensive process, as well as the financial reviews that had to go on stock holdings and memberships sure. in organizations. I had to resign from all of my faculty appointments at medical schools. So it's a very comprehensive process during the Obama administration, of course, during the Trump administration, it was completely opposite. There was sure. really no vetting process that went on. Were they vetting multiple people or you were their top choice and they, they were hoping it was going to work out? No, the in any senior position, they're vetting multiple people. They cannot uh, afford to lose a candidate at the end of the process. 
and then have to start over. So they're always vetting multiple candidates. They do have priorities and preferences, but um, it's just a it's just a good way to essentially fill these positions to vet multiple candidates at the same time. You know, I remember hearing your name right around. I would say the inauguration of of Trump because you were you were the technically the only Obama holdover. Is that is that was that right? I was the only Obama holdover. Yes, I, I would think that's quite a compliment in such a chaotic political landscape that we're in. And you know, I tend to be a person who believes that you should serve in government not because of your political party, but because of your commitment and loyalty to the country. So I do believe that it's important that people come in and they are viewed as being able to or willing to work for either the Democrats or Republicans. I was the only Trump cabinet member that got 100 to zero confirmation by the U.S. Senate. And I've been confirmed twice 100 to zero. Th- that, that, was, that was for both roles. Both roles. But interestingly, that was not viewed as positive in the Trump administration. Uh, the president himself <laughs> would refer to me not by my name, but by the 100 to zero man. He did not believe that that was necessarily a good thing. He felt that people that were respected and supported in a partisan way had enemies enemies actually, actually might be a better thing. Over time, I think he sort of grew warmer to the fact that I had relationships on the Democratic side. But that was a difficult thing for for him to come to grips with, since most of the cabinet members, not all of them, but most of them, you know, were very narrow margins in their confirmation votes. Sure. And and at any point during your role as undersecretary, was there a desire to to eventually, regardless of who then who was going to be president next or whatever happened in inside whatever administration, was there ever a desire to become the secretary of the VA, or were you just kind of was it kind of just in the rear view? No, I I had come in, in at the tail end of the Obama administration. That was my plan to serve during the Obama administration and then leave on January 20th at noon, like all political appointees. I had turned in my letter of resignation. My boxes were packed in my office. My wife was coming with the car to pick me up on <laughs> January 19th to load up my boxes. I had no intention of staying on and certainly no intention of being secretary. I had never really considered it because prior to me being secretary, every prior secretary had been a veteran. And it was sort of a unwritten oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was an unwritten rule that, you know, to become secretary, you needed to be a veteran. Of course, people at the time did not understand that President Trump was not necessarily interested in following other people's rules. He he made up his, you know, his mind on how he wanted to do things. <laughs> That's for sure. But, you know, while I was not looking to stay on in the administration, and I certainly was not politicking to be secretary, I did have a desire to continue to serve because I felt like I had started to make some real progress at VA while I was undersecretary, but I didn't feel like the job was done. I felt like there was a lot more that needed to happen for our veterans. And I felt like I finally understood the way the system worked. I had a plan. I wanted to see it executed. And so that desire to continue to serve was something that when President Trump uh, nominated me, I was actually 
more than willing to stay on to continue that mission. Did you did did you meet with him to discuss any part of the role, or how did the nomination come about? Like, I, I, I'm curious, not just for your particular role, but like how involved. I guess Donald Trump is a, is is done things differently in this regard, probably than than his predecessors, regardless of party. But how did the conversation start with you becoming the secretary of the VA? Did you have to meet with Trump, or was it other people that put it together? How, how did all that unfold? Well, remember, President Trump became president on January 20th. It was the second week in January that I got a call that he wanted to meet with me in his office in New York City at Trump Tower. At that time, uh, it had been months of the press circulating names for secretary, everything from Sarah Palin to, you know, prior congressmen and, and you know, well-known veterans in the community you know, I had thought that he had selected a secretary. So when he asked to meet with me, I thought it was an exit interview. And um, I thought that this was going to be a time for me before I left in in a week to be able to say to the president-elect, here's what I've learned. Here's my recommendations for what you do going forward in terms of continuing to fix the VA. The president-elect had been talking a lot about the VA and something that he felt strongly about. And I thought this was a great opportunity for me to tell him. So I went and I met with him. It was a meeting like no other. The way I would describe it, it was like a Saturday night skit in his office. Was it just you and him? No, it was like what you would see on Saturday Night Live. So in the meeting, There was him and I, but also in the meeting, coming in and out, doing business all the time was Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner. Reince Priebus, I assume. Reince Priebus. And so there was a flurry of activity. Every time we would try to talk, somebody would come in and say, you know, Donald, I need you to take a look at this. We're doing a press conference. You know, this is what's happening. At times I would be interrupted. They'd ask me to leave the room. Donald Trump would say, no, let David stay. They would have an argument about this and that. And so it was not what you would call a typical exit interview. During the time, Donald Trump asked me who I thought should be secretary. I actually thought the current secretary, Bob McDonald, uh, my boss at the time, was doing a great job. And I said, I think he should remain secretary. And Donald Trump said, that's just not possible. That's not going to happen. And so we would talk. But what would happen is, is that he would ask me a question. I would begin to answer it. And either he would answer it then. He would interrupt me and answer it. So he'd say, what do you think we need to do to fix the VA? I would say, well, Mr. You know, President-elect, I think that what we need to begin to do is, and he would say, well, I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to make sure the <laughs> veterans can get out and get health care when they need it from private doctors. This went on for 90 minutes, and I left the meeting pretty confused. Um, when I walked out, there was a, there was a gaggle of cameras and people interviewing me. And they said, you know, Dr. Shulkin, what happened in your meeting with President Trump? And I said, I'm not sure. And that's what I told my wife. But I never really seriously considered that he would nominate me as secretary for the reasons that we talked about. When President Obama nominated me to be undersecretary, it was a very methodical process. I was called down with my wife 
on the day of nomination, we had gone over a press release. They had given me a number of phone calls to make to senators and congressmen beforehand so they wouldn't be surprised. We had reviewed a list of validators. So if the newspaper wanted to ask about me, we would refer to certain people that are known in the community who could speak about my competencies. We had talked about what my next day was going to be like after the nomination, where my visits would be. There were no conversations like that during my time that I spoke to the Trump team. So basically, I thought it was a very interesting conversation that I was glad to have experienced, but I thought that was it. And then a few days later, they announced me as the nominee. Did they actually ask you if you wanted the role or they... I did not have any conversations with the team after I left that single meeting until he went on TV and announced me as the nominee. Interesting. I'm not surprised by that. I, I, I have more questions about a lot of what you've done as secretary. I'm just curious because it seems to be that there's a lot of issues that come up during election season, you know, that people don't talk about at any other time. One is the VA, you know, and everybody becomes a VA expert, just like everybody's a foreign policy expert, at least in, in my circles, when we talk about politics. Even when you took over as undersecretary in 2015, was the heart of the VA really that dysfunctional as certain politicians would pitch to their constituents? Or was it like anything else that there were just areas that needed improvement? Were, were veterans really not, not getting the right type of care or they didn't have the right type of resources? Did it need an overhaul? Well, Alex, you know, during that year that I was in the vetting process, I wasn't having formal communication with the VA. I was getting my information like everybody else through the press and reading about the problems of the VA. And I pretty much thought I might get to the VA and decide this system is too broken to fix. And the very best thing I could do would be to oversee it shut down and get veterans who needed care into the private sector where I had spent my career. I was very comfortable working in the healthcare system, knowing that we could take care of veterans. When I got to the VA, one of the first things that I did was, and I've always done this as an executive, I put on a stethoscope and a white coat and I go out and I start seeing patients because that's how I really get a sense about what the organization is like to get care in. And once I began to do that and saw how care was delivered in the VA and how important this care was to this very specific population of patients, our veterans, I came to the conclusion independently that the VA had such strengths, had such a unique role in the healthcare system, and such dedicated, passionate people that this was a system absolutely not only worth saving and capable of saving, but it was essential that we save the VA to honor our commitment to the men and women who have sacrificed and served for our country. And I began to see this system as really just simply not having a plan, not having the right leadership team in place. But once we were able to do that, I saw a system that really was performing at a very high level and feel very, very comfortable about the quality of care that's delivered in the VA today. Great to hear. And a lot of people don't know this. And tell me if any of this, if this data is wrong. The Veterans Health Administration is indeed the largest healthcare system in the country. And I don't know what the enrollees are now, but I know a couple of years ago, it was somewhere near the nine to 10 million mark in terms of enrollees. I think they were seeing close to, from what I saw, what I was researching, 7 million patients a year. I think contrary to popular belief, I, I found in my research, 
that veterans don't all get free health care for life, which I thought was interesting. What I've learned from the, the these interviews I've been doing, especially with people that have been in the in the in the government arena, is things tend to move slower than anybody wants inside government for a number of reasons: budget, policy, just timelines. It's it's hard to get big stuff done. And I've used this reference before. President Obama always would say trying to move anything inside the federal government is like trying to move a, a um, cruise liner across the water. It's just hard to move. And it takes, it takes a lot of time. In a hypothetical magic wand situation, when, when you were working in the VA, either as undersecretary or as the secretary of the VA, if there was one or two things you could have done at the snap of the finger that you knew could have made a big impact, but would only get slowed down by the minutia of Washington, D.C., what, what, would the, what would it have been? Well, Alex, let me just reframe my perspective on your question. I believe it is actually much easier to do big things in government than to do small incremental things. And so I would only spend my time on the big things and I would try to get those across the finish line. And during my time as secretary, I got 11 major bills done, more than any other agency in the federal government. I would do it asking for big things and I would do it in a bipartisan way. To me, the disappointment was, was that other cabinet secretaries and the president weren't learning that this was the way to get things done in government. I think the president was really surprised when he didn't get the health care bill through and he lost by one vote with John. You're talking about the, the Obamacare repeal. Yes, yes, because in my view, the way to do things is by trying to seek bipartisan support and being clear about what you're trying to achieve. So I'll give you some examples in the differences between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And by the way, I left the Trump administration because of very deep philosophical differences with the Trump administration. So I am not a strong supporter of many of the things that the president did. But I will tell you, when it came to veterans issues, his style allowed me to get a lot done, and that helped a lot of veterans. In fixing the wait time crisis, I believed that it was very important that once we fixed it, which I did during the Obama administration, we went to same-day appointments. I knew from my experience that once you fix a problem, over time, it tends to drift back and you end up in the same place that you were unless you do something to prevent those problems from happening again. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to publish and publicly make available all of our wait times because I'd gotten it to same day appointments and I didn't want it ever to drift back. So I developed a system that would publish wait times for the VA, for every VA medical center across the country. And no one had ever done this in healthcare. And I went to the Obama administration and I said, this is an important piece of finishing the job, let's do it. And they said, no way, we're not gonna do it. This is gonna be used against us by our political enemies. This is gonna be the topic of newspaper reports when they find that there's one VA in a small town with a long wait time. Why would we ever go ahead and do this to ourselves. It would be self-destructive. I couldn't have disagreed more, but that was their thought process. That was their analysis. I assume because you were, you were thinking about it from an accountability perspective. It's an accountability issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things I've learned in healthcare is public accountability for outcomes is really important. So a week into my term as secretary, I went to the president and I said, Mr. President, I want to publish our wait times. And he said, well, 
would that be a good thing for veterans? I said, yes, Mr. President, that would be a very good thing for veterans. He said, he said, let's do it. And I just did it. That afternoon, I pushed a button and we did it. Wow. Uh, when I was secretary, I went to the president and then to Congress. And I said, now that there's a drug that can cure hepatitis C, I want to end hepatitis C for all veterans in this country. The president said, let's do it. And the Congress said, let's do it. And I said, all I need is a billion and a half dollars. And they gave it to me. And wow. today there's less than 10,000 veterans in this country that have hepatitis C. We have essentially eliminated hepatitis C in a population of patients. Wow. I think that reaching for big goals is the way to make change in government. People who try to make incremental change get stuck in the art of the compromise. Well, we can't really do this, let's do that. And you end up with a watered down version that in a big bureaucracy isn't even noticed. It's a pebble in the ocean. If you seek big change and it's the right change and you're doing it for the right reason, that's how you make change in government. When you say, Mr. Secretary, you went to the president as a cabinet secretary in general, is that, is that hard to do? Like, I'm a... Uh, if you can't tell, I'm a little bit of a political junkie and I love history and I'm very fascinated by how that whole process works. So right. you you want to talk, let's use this example if we can. You want to talk to the, the, the president of the United States about something that's a big issue to you, talking about wait times. So do you have direct access to him specifically via a cell phone? Like, how does that work? It's very, very different depending on the style of the president. Again, in President Obama, you would never go directly to the president. You would go to designated staff people. In the case of the VA, we had a very competent person who was deputy chief of staff, and that was her job to handle VA issues. And if we were going to have a meeting with the president, we would start meeting with her about three weeks before that meeting. We would submit briefing materials. She would digest them, come back with questions. You would redo them. She then, when it got to a good form, would present them to her boss, the chief of staff, who would review them. We would set agendas, ultimately leading up to a meeting with the president where he was briefed beforehand and he would be prepared. In the Trump administration, it was nothing like that. I had to pass to the White House. I would walk into the West Wing does that mean you, I'm sorry, I, I just, I have to ask these questions. Is it a pass to the White House means you could go whenever you wanted? Yes. And I would go into the West Wing and I would walk up to Madeline, who was the president's executive assistant right outside the Oval. And I'd say, Madeline, is the president in? And she'd look and peer over. She'd say, yeah, he's in. Why don't you just pop in? And I would just pop in. He was always happy to see me and in fact would often invite me to stay for meetings that frankly had nothing to do with the VA. He'd say, David, sit down, listen to this. This is going to be interesting. We're going to have a conversation about moving the embassy from um, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Maybe you'd like to listen to this. And so, so um, what you would find is in the Trump administration that certain cabinet secretaries would spend more time in the West Wing and spend more time with the president. I happened to feel like I had a job to do, so I wouldn't spend a lot of time doing that. But anytime I needed to see him, it would generally be relatively easy to get access. He would also call a lot, you know, sometimes 10, 11 o'clock at night, the phone would ring and it would be the president. He was watching TV, he saw something on the VA, he wanted to talk about it, hear about it, and ask you for some information. So there was regular contact, and anytime that you needed to do something, 
or see him, you could arrange that pretty easily. Once John Kelly became chief of staff, John tried to put a little bit more discipline into the process. And out of respect for the process, I would tend to go more towards the chief of staff first before directly going to the president to try to help create some more order, because I felt that the administration needed to have some more discipline in order to function correctly. In regards to your exit as secretary, you had mentioned before that there was philosophical differences, because it, so- it sounds like from, from, from what you're saying, Mr. Secretary, that you know, there, was, there was a pretty nice flowing relationship with Trump, and you know, he had active interest in the VA, and he, was, he, he took, you know, you brought him some big ideas, and he, he trusted you, obviously. So you were there, what, for 13 months, I saw? You were there for 13 months, and if you don't mind me asking, how, how did the end come about? Because it seemed like you had a good thing going there. Yeah, yeah. I always had a good open relationship with the president. On the day that I was fired, he had called me at around noon. We spoke on the phone for an hour, and it was a relatively normal conversation about updates about what we were going to get done. I told him during the next 90 days, I was going to give him three new policy initiatives that were going to make a big difference. He seemed to be pleased with that. He had some questions about it, but it was a normal conversation. At about six o'clock that evening, I was on the phone with my wife. I had just gotten home from the office and she's in Philadelphia. I'm in Washington. And she said to me, oh my God, I just got a tweet from the president. I never got his tweets, but she she did. And she said, you've been replaced by his personal doctor, Ronnie Jackson. And so that's the way I found out about it. This was the turmoil that you would see in the Trump administration, wow. which is that somebody had a discussion with the president between, you know, one o'clock when I hung up the phone with him and six o'clock when he tweeted me out that must have said, you know, Mr. President, this guy, and I have no knowledge of this. I'm just imagining what the conversation would be. But, you know, this is, this guy really is an Obama guy. He's not Mm. in line with you. You need to have somebody who is more philosophically in line or whatever it is. And the president was convinced that this was the right thing to do. The big issue of tension that I had with the administration, not as much, you know, in terms of direct conflict with the president, but the president's people was over privatizing the VA. And I simply was not willing to do that. And I knew I was putting my job on the line. And, um, you know, I told my family every day, you know, you serve at the pleasure of the president. This may be my last day. And I was okay with that. You know, that that's part of what you have to do if you're going to stand up and be principle-based and be willing to stand up for what you believe in. So is it safe that you were completely shocked? You were let go? No, there's a whole series of events that led up to it. There was a campaign of his political appointees, Trump political appointees, that had determined that I should not be the secretary, that we needed somebody in that office that was more- that was going on. I knew that was going on and I had direct evidence because a plan, a written plan to oust me and to create a campaign of misinformation to get me out was, a written plan was by mistake left on the VA copier. A staff member found it and ultimately gave it to me that showed a very specific plan to get rid of me, the deputy secretary, another Senate confirmed person, the undersecretary who had taken over under my role, and my chief of staff. 
And if you look at what happened, they executed the plan with precision. The deputy secretary was fired. The undersecretary was asked to leave. The chief of staff was asked to resign. I was taken out of office. And so this was a political campaign. And while it sounds crazy and funny, this was repeated dozens of times to other senior officials in the Trump administration. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. That's why there were more than 20 people in and out of the cabinet. There were constantly people at the uh, deputy level being fired and dismissed. Yeah, and, it was chaos. Yeah, very, very good people like Jim Mattis and John Kelly and other people that I believe were serving their country for the right reasons. So it was a very difficult environment. I ended up writing a book called It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, yeah, I have a copy which, which is Sorry. about this experience of how difficult it is to serve in public service in an environment that is political and partisan as we've seen in Washington in the last couple of years. So you learned about this from your wife because she saw the tweet. Did you ever speak to the president after that? No, did not. Yeah, it's an interesting style of, of doing things. I know you have to go. I want to ask you just some, some, fun, some fun questions for myself. And I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much. I wish I wish we were in person for this event because I would make you come to the bar with me for an hour and just and, and pick your brain like I've done to many, many of our keynote speakers. I wanted to ask you because um, I've only ever been to the White House in the East Wing. My goal one day is to get a West Wing tour and yep. see all the fun stuff. I'm curious about what your first experience was like in the West Wing. Was it what you imagined it to be? How was it different? What did you feel when you went into the Oval Office? What, what was that first experience like? I was in the White House many times during the Obama administration. The West Wing is actually much smaller than people realize it. I've heard that. It has not been renovated in a long time. It, it has old technology. It, it is, um, you know, relatively cramped space. There's only really two meeting rooms in the West Wing itself, the Roosevelt room. And the cabinet room, right? And the cabinet room. And the cabinet yeah. room generally is reserved only when the president is there. So the meeting room is primarily the Roosevelt room. And that's, a, that's across from the Oval Office, right? It is across from the Oval Office, but it's a relatively condensed space. President Obama did not have many visitors in the Oval Office. He reserved that for people that were dignitaries or very special meetings. President Trump liked to be in the Oval Office. So, so he would invite most of our meetings with the president were just hanging out in the Oval Office. My wife would come into the Oval Office. We'd have large group meetings with veterans in the Oval Office. He just, he felt that it was a very special place and he wanted to show other people and make them feel comfortable there. It was a very different style, but it's a very, it's a very small space. It's a very, you know, place that has a great deal of dignity and you know shows a lot of what the government is like and so the thing about the west wing is is that it's filled the hallways are filled with photographs taken by the white house photographer and they're constantly switching the photographs so if the president takes a trip overseas you'll see the walls filled with the overseas trip a week later you may see those those photographs replaced with something else so it's always a fascinating place to be and you're always looking to see if you might be in those photographs because the secret is you can put a yellow sticky on the back of a photograph with your name on it. And when they're rotated off, 
if your name is on the back, they will actually send you that photograph. So it's that's sort cool. of fun and you want to go over and see which pictures are changed. The only other thing that's primarily in the West Wing besides people's offices and only certain people have offices is the mess hall. And the Navy runs the, what you would call the dining rooms. And that's a, that's a very special place in which you can have a meal, you know, prepared uh, by the Navy, which is done in a really nice way. And it's a great place to, to enjoy a meal. The first time you ever entered the Oval Office, was it, what was that experience like? I, I plan to be in the Oval Office one day in my life because I, I would love to see it. I'm just curious what that experience was like. Was it what you expected? The first time was during the Trump administration because, you know, with President Obama, I was not invited into the Oval. I was, met with him in the Roosevelt room. I met with him in the cabinet room, but not in the Oval. So, yeah, it was a great honor to be to be in the Oval Office. Mr. Secretary, thank you. Thank you so much for this. I thoroughly enjoyed this. And I know our listeners, many thousands who are in healthcare, are going to enjoy this as well. Great life. Great guy. Thank you so much, Mr. Secretary. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out our other episodes. You can listen on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe. And for more information, you can visit mill-all.com. 